So at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 12, Paul says, in view of God's mercies, I urge you to present your bodies as a sacrifice. Now Romans 1 through 11, prior to this, explores the depths of God's love and mercy through Jesus Christ. It explores the work of Jesus' life and death for the sin of humanity. All our sins as individuals, our rebellion against God, our creator. It explores the forgiveness that Christ secured at the very moment when we were living in rebellion to him. So Romans uh, chapter 5 verse 8 is one of these key verses in the book. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. Now, Paul says, in summing up all of this, in view of everything that God has done for you, for humanity, I'm urging you. Now, I want you to notice that Paul knows he cannot force someone to do anything more than any of us can. He cannot force this on them. And so he encourages them in the deepest way he can. Give your body, your entire life, back to God. It's the same for all of us. None of us can force each other to do things. But we can urge one another with the deepest amount of love that we can harness. Give your life back to God as a sacrifice to Him. And then Paul says, here's what that looks like. You must resist the mold of the present world. Do not be conformed to this world, he says. Resist the spirit of the age that you live in. And instead, be transformed through the renewal of the, your mind. And if you had read Romans 1 through 11, you would know that this renewal of the mind that Paul speaks of comes through the spirit of Jesus Christ that he gives to those who believe in him. Now in our passages today, in Matthew and in Romans chapter 12, we are taught how to resist the spirit of the age in one particular area. And that is how to deal with conflict. How to deal with conflict. Now, I know this might not feel very relevant because everything in the world around us is very peaceful and calm. So I, I'm going to just ask you to try the best you can to still pay attention. Don't seem like this is, don't act like this is boring and completely, make me feel good by listening and trying to find some way to apply this to your life and to the world we live in. Now, in our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 18, Jesus outlines a process for dealing with conflict. Now, it's specifically about conflict within the church, conflict that has emerged because one person has committed an offense that he or she has been unwilling to acknowledge up to this point. But in Romans 12, the type of conflict is expanded to include that which occurs outside the church. So Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Paul says this, and you don't say this sort of thing unless you know it's going to be difficult to live at peace with all people. Now I'm going to jump right in. How should we deal with conflict? One... We should develop the ability to be lovingly direct. We should develop the ability to be lovingly direct. 
Now, none of us can nail down a single way that the spirit of our age deals with conflict. There's not just one single way. It's not that simple. But in broad terms, I think we see two extremes. We see the avoidance of conflict and the boiling over of conflict. The avoidance of conflict and then the boiling over of it. Avoidance of conflict happens because our world has few standards left that it agrees on. When it comes to issues of sexuality, marriage, money, religious beliefs, and many, many others, we've become more and more a world where it's every man or woman for oneself. Now, however, one of the highest standards people do tend to agree on is the standard of tolerance. There's a pressure in the air to support others' choices, to cover over any would-be conflict with a spirit of tolerance toward each other. And, And this isn't new. The ancient world was very similar in this. They made a virtue in the ancient world out of tolerance. So the teachers of the day were called moral philosophers. And they normally associated virtue with apathy. This really was, we see it as a very bad thing today to be apathetic. But in the ancient world, apathy could be a very good thing. It it meant a lack of, of deep involvement in others' decisions. And whether we like that word or not, that is essentially how we look on others' decisions. My role is just to support them, whatever decision that may be. And whether you like it or not, that is a form of apathy. Now, the church is built to be nearly the opposite in this area. For one, within the church, we actually do have standards that we agree on or that we should agree on. To be a Christian is to submit your life to the authority of God, particularly as his authority is revealed in the person of Jesus and in the scriptures. Also, Instead of exalting a spirit of apathy, Paul says, Do not be slothful in your zeal. Be fervent on fire in the spirit. That's anything but apathetic. Christians are to be full of zeal, especially in our attitudes toward each other and toward the things of God. Let love be genuine, Paul says. Abhor what is evil. Now, the word genuine means without hypocrisy. In other words, you're not putting on a face pretending there's nothing wrong when there is something wrong. Abhor, well, that's not an apathetic word, is it? It's a strong word. And the early church father, Origen, said, a person who does not hate the vices cannot love and preserve the virtues. How can you love things that are really good, but then not have any feeling whatsoever toward things that might not be good? To genuinely love each other, we must be equally willing to affirm the good and confront the dark and destructive forces in each other's lives. So Jesus says, if a fellow believer sins, go and show him his fault when the two of you are alone. Now, when you were listening to that passage in many of your Bibles, it will say, if a brother sins against you. And just so you know, in Luke, it says, if anyone sins, not necessarily against you, if anyone sins and they've been unwilling to acknowledge it, go and speak to them about this. We have taken it on ourselves to say that it's none of our business if it doesn't affect us. But that's actually not all that the passage says. In fact, even in Matthew, the original manuscripts actually say, if anyone sins. 
not just against you, if anyone sins. So in the church, we don't have to buy into the American way of saying, if it doesn't affect me, then it's not my business. That is just uh, kind of proof texting American individualism. And we don't need to do that. Now, this is an example of being lovingly direct. If a fellow believer sins, go and show him his fault when the two of you are alone. It's loving. There's no gossip involved. And misunderstandings can be immediately cleared up when the conversation happens between two people. It doesn't have to go any further than this. It can be dealt with in that moment. I want to ask you guys, when is the last time you were lovingly direct with someone? Or someone was lovingly direct with you? When's the last time that happened? It's such a gift to have people like this in your life. Now, you may not feel that way immediately when someone is lovingly direct with you. Eventually, if you come to see that you were really wrong, or even if you don't, but they were just raising something as a concern, there's something there that you have to be appreciative of. This person cares about me enough that if there's something destructive and harmful in my life, they're willing not to let me go on in it, but to actually raise it. They have the courage to talk to me about it. They give me dignity by actually looking at me. And seeing how I'm living my life. The book of Proverbs says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It doesn't mean that it's easy to receive these kinds of corrections. But there's a sense that you're truly loved if someone is willing to firmly disagree with you and remain committed to your good. Now, I mentioned that the spirit of our age tends to deal with conflict in one of two ways. One, by avoidance of conflict, but second, by letting conflict boil over. How are we to deal with conflict? We are to develop the ability to be lovingly direct with each other. I've heard Christians sometimes described as needing to be like felt-covered hammers. And we don't need to be just hammers. (laughs) We need to be hammers that have a softness to us. We need to be firm and strong, but we also need to have a gentleness and a love in our firmness. We need to be able to be lovingly direct, but likewise, we have to develop the ability to leave things to God. And these two things go together. These skills The ability to be lovingly direct and at the same time leave things to God. These must operate side by side. You see, if you're not willing to be lovingly direct, then you are just apathetic. You aren't receiving the call of God to be actually engaged in each other's life and actually care about each other. But, as we're going to see in the rest of the passage in Romans, if you're not willing at some point to just leave things to God, then you are going to take vengeance as your own responsibility and it's going to destroy you in the end. Now, even at its best, conflict easily goes wrong. At its best, handling conflict well does not mean that the other party always responds in the way that you hope. That very often doesn't happen, honestly. 
So Jesus lays out a process that provides for accountability on both sides of the conflict. The one accusing, raising it, and the one it's being raised against. If one meeting doesn't go well, Jesus says, involve one or two others. And this is a way of giving up control, of turning the conflict over to God to be the one who truly determines the nature of it. These one or two others involved can help determine if the conflict really needs to go any further. And even if it does go further, there always comes a time when you still have to completely give it over to God. You cannot force another person's decision in the matter. Now, adding to this, Paul says, never avenge yourselves for a wrong done against you. Never. Repay no one evil for evil. Now, why is this? Does this mean that the wrongs done against us are small and insignificant? That the wrongs that have been done in our culture are wrong and insignificant? That evil doesn't really matter? No. It doesn't mean we're going soft on evil if we don't seek revenge. Actually, it means the opposite. You see, at the center of the Christian story stands this claim. That when human evil reached its height, God came and he took the full weight of it upon himself. This is what Paul was getting at in Romans chapter 5 in the verse I quoted at the beginning. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, intends to say that evil has been exalted I'm sorry, not exalted. That is the completely wrong word. Scratch that from the recording. Evil has been exhausted in his death. He absorbed it. He died for it. And in his resurrection, Jesus has opened the way for the creation of a new kind of world altogether. But revenge, when we revenge wrongdoing against us, we tell a different story about the world. It's a false story. We keep evil in circulation and we suggest that God hasn't really dealt with it. And that we're the ones who need to do that. What Paul's saying in this passage in Romans 9 through 21, when he says, instead of seeking revenge, actually do good to them. What he's saying is, tell the true story about the world. Evil has been dealt with, and there's a new kind of world that's coming into the creation. Christ is making all things new. Evil doesn't need to be kept in circulation. Our job actually is to seek through the spirit of Christ to bring heaven to earth. And in doing good, we're showing that this is what is happening. This is what God is doing in the world. Now the other sad side to seeking revenge is that revenge actually destroys us as much as it destroys others. Maybe even more. Frederick Nietzsche, this is a guy who didn't agree with Christians on many things, but he had a brilliant insight in this area. Here's what he said. Beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. For when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. This is a problem in our world. The spirit of our age causes people to think that the boiling over of conflict, the rage that we take against the evils that have been done, when we seek revenge for those evils, 
we think that it will produce the outcome that we desire. That it will create the world that we long for. But it actually, in the process, twists our souls and our spirits. It diminishes our ability to love and we're left with a scorched earth and no soul on which to rebuild it. So how should we deal with conflict? We must develop the ability to be lovingly direct. And at the same time, the ability to leave things to God in the end. Now these abilities must function together. If we only leave things to God, as I said, we become apathetic when God has called us to live with zeal, burning with the spirit of Jesus Christ. Passionate in serving him in the world and in seeking his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So we should speak lovingly and call out evil where we see it. We should not become apathetic people as if evil doesn't matter in the world. But if we're only direct, we will become distorted and cynical when we realize that we alone cannot change others and we alone cannot change the world. We cannot make evil right on our own. This is the work that God is doing through Jesus Christ. This is the work that God will finish in his return. And until then, our job is to pray that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. So how are we to deal with conflict? We must develop the ability to be lovingly direct. And then we also must develop the ability to leave things to God, who is the one who is working all things for his glory and is the one who sent his son Jesus Christ while we were sinners to die for us. And he is the one who is going at the final day to bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.